I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, The Hedgehog and the Fox explore the benefits of speaking more than one language in the company of science writer Marek Kohn. Marek recently published a book called Four Words for Friend, a reference to the fact that a Russian speaker has a choice of four different ways of indicating the degree of closeness he or she feels towards someone who in English would simply be referred to as a friend. So this already indicates that learning a language is not simply a matter of memorising a set of one-to-one correspondences. There are nuances and subtleties to tune into. Different languages see the world differently, configure human interactions and relationships differently. As a young child, Marek spoke Polish, his father's native language, at home. But unlike many other writers on bilingualism, Marek does not, he readily admits, write from a position of complete and equal mastery of both languages. When he started school, English began to gain the upper hand, and Polish became what he calls a slightly ghostly first language. Not gone, not entirely forgotten, but edged out before it was deep-rooted. And perhaps counterintuitively, This imperfect command of Polish makes him more rather than less interesting when he writes about the advantages of multilingualism. Because his is not a council of linguistic perfection, unattainable for most of us, but an advocacy of the real benefits that can come from exercising some personal knowledge of another language, be the educational, cognitive, economic, interpersonal, or indeed intercommunal. We'll come back to those big questions, but when I spoke to Marek recently, I began by asking him to tell me more about that gear shift from Polish to English that he experienced as a child. My big experience with language, I guess, was you go to school and wham, it hits you. Suddenly you you become very, very aware that everybody around is, is, is speaking the dominant language and suddenly that seems really, really important. The trouble is that if, particularly I think in, in the British school system where you start going to school rather early, you haven't actually finished learning the language by the time that you, you hit school and you suddenly get your priorities reordered in this, yes. in this uh, overwhelming way. So what you've got is not only, uh, you've got two problems. One is that you haven't finished learning it. And I mean, remember, most of us uh, spend a lot of time learning whatever language we speak, we spend a lot of time learning it formally in, in, in schools. The education systems in most countries don't take it for granted that you simply pick it up. They spend a lot of time teaching you how to speak it, inverted commas, properly in, in, in classrooms. 
I think and I understand that there's another problem here, which is that the language that does get engraved uh, in, in your neural circuitry in, in those early years is, is not fixed. It can be overwritten. Um, it hasn't set. The general picture is uh, derived from work by a linguist called Monica Schmidt, uh, who, who advised me about this. You kind of need to consolidate it during the whole of childhood. The, the point is that you really need to get it down, consolidated it over the course of those those earlier years. So for me, I went to Poland when I was five years old, and I'm told that I, I, I was indistinguishable from a native. And uh, I was always kind of proud of, of, of my Polish accent. My father actually became unable to, to, to speak after having a stroke in the in the mid-1980s, so, so um, I was, uh, although I was still speaking to him, he wasn't saying any, uh, anything back. And uh, of course, in those days, you know, there just weren't that many Poles around. And I mean, I suppose I have to say as well that this is, uh, that there was a wider cultural and political issue. I mean, uh, growing up in those times, uh, being at the age that I am, you know, uh, we were a generation, I'm talking about um, Western kids, middle-class Western kids, in which a lot of us, particularly the more over-educated and intellectually pretentious ones amongst us, uh, among us, which, I'm, which I would have to count myself, we tended, shall we say, to be uh, s- somewhat divergent from our parents' culture. So if you don't maintain your, your religious adherence and your political and cultural views diverge in an emigre community like the one that the, uh, the, the Polish one was in, in, in those times, you don't have so many people to talk to. And that really didn't change until, in a big way, until 2004 for me, when uh, the United Kingdom opened up to people from the countries that joined the European Union at that point, uh, most about half of whom were Poles. And so from that point on, it was different. There's a much wider range of, of, of people around and there were more people for me to talk to. And that made it easier to do what I'd kind of kind of been on my mind for, for quite a long time. Um, what well, has always been there in the background? I mean, I'd been in Poland for a, a while in the a couple of months in the mid, mid 80s. My Polish picked up at that point And then, mm, you know, as I say, there just wasn't anybody to talk, talk to yeah. in, in, in practical terms. And other things come along. You know, there's exactly. so much else, so much else. But then in in more recent years, uh, it went from having, taking more, more, much more of an interest for various reasons, but I think uh, we can point to the way that, quite honestly, all of us are so much more preoccupied with identity than we were 10, 20 years ago or more. And I decided that I, that things weren't really complete for me without an attempt to actually recover the language as well as being in, being in touch with what was going on in the country and what was going on in, in, in the culture of, of, of Poland. And um, it, was, it was actually rather wonderful. I had this, this, this fantastic uh, conversation where I, 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 I met somebody, a native Polish speaker, uh, and she, she, suddenly, she started speaking in Polish. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was absolutely terrified. And three or four, well, what seemed like three or four hours later, I was so happy, not only because she's an excellent conversationalist and a very good company, but because I just thought I really, really feel better having been in that language for a period of time 
kind of not under any pressure, just chatting, you know, doesn't, where it doesn't matter if you make mistakes and you, you can't find words. That stayed with me and I think has had a lot to do with the path that I then took to, towards writing this book. Now, non-scientists, but I mean, lay people such as me may have had a notion that a language like your Polish from your childhood was somehow preserved in a dusty room in your brain and it was simply a matter of recovering the key and turning the lock and reactivating and it all sort of come flooding back but the book makes clear that it's to go back to your sort of overwriting metaphor it can be entirely overwritten or it can be partially overwritten so I guess you were in a a sort of strange intermediate state a lot of people in this country know no Polish and then there's a, a large Polish community who are completely fluent but you were sort of in an intermediate state when you when you set about trying to recover or reanimate or improve your Polish and still am in a profoundly <laughs> intermediate state, you know. I mean, I can do a lot more with it now, but honestly, you know, um, and, and a lot of it is embarrassment, you know. Uh, uh, I, I prided myself in at least sounding Polish, and, you know, my dad would acknowledge that, if nothing else, you know. And, uh, but that was a long time ago, and, and I opened my mouth now, and I thought, oh, what does that sound like? You know, uh, it's a it's kind of off-putting. I kind of hide an email, you know. But yeah, the the, the point about about um, being neither here nor there is, is, I think, a very very important one for um, what are known in the trade as heritage speakers like myself. One big problem with it is that we're all at different levels. And and you've got in the back of the mind your mind where you when you meet somebody who doesn't speak Poland, per, the, the language perfectly, the first thing you're thinking is do they speak it better better or worse than I do, and which whatever is the answer it's unsatisfactory because if they speak it better than you do you feel 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 bad and awkward and if they speak it worse than you you're worrying because you're thinking hang on is that actually right have I been getting this wrong all this time <laughs> and. Uh, so, you know, we're not particularly great at helping, helping each other out and we need help from people with a much more solid grasp of, of the language and an awful lot of patience. One does feel embarrassed and ashamed because, you know, and also, I mean, actually, it's, it's, it's more than just a, a shame about one's competence. There's actually an element of patriotism involved here, you know. You know, you do actually want to live up to the standards of the community. That feeling may vary in intensity and quality from community to community, but certainly my own particular circumstances were that of being second generation, or I think it's sometimes called two and a half generation because I didn't, um, didn't have two Polish parents. I was born into a, a, a community, a network, who had a very deep commitment to keeping the country and its culture alive in exile um, while the country itself was under a, a regime that they ab abhorred. So there was this sort of sense of duty, and I think, uh, I, th I, think I still feel that. But this, this thing about it being still being in there somewhere, people said that to me all my life. Well, you know, if you, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's in, it's in that cupboard somewhere. And uh, I, I was rather hopeful when I spoke to the, the linguist um, Monica Sch Schmidt, who's... Uh, from Germany and now based at the University of Essex. And, um, yeah, she kind of disabused me um, after getting my language history like, like, like a doctor. I said, no, it probably isn't still in there because 
I didn't complete that period of consolidation throughout the, the, the length of my childhood. But, you know, there is stuff to build on there. And as the Russian-American linguist uh, Maria, Maria Polinsky, Polinsky says, uh, it's not just a heap of ruins. Heritage languages do have a structure. And so there is something to build on. It's not just chaos. So, you know, we have work to do, but, uh, but uh, we're not starting from scratch. You've got some building blocks or some tools that you can use. And you, you've already mentioned, Marek, that you, you felt quite proud about your ability to, to sound Polish, to make the Polish sounds. And it's fascinating in the book that that, that sort of sensitivity to the sounds of a language are something which begin even before birth and for the non-native speaker are very, very difficult to match in terms of near-native proficiency and that's something which which keeps coming out in the book that it is very hard to achieve that sort of near native proficiency in another language which kind of ties into this idea that languages yes are communicative tools but also they serve to demarcate there are often lines permeable sometimes but there are lines between the community who speak the language and the community who are on the on the outside well yes uh, every language draws around the people that possess it a circle. Um, the linguist von Helmholtz famously said in German, so he didn't say exactly that. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm so conscious of the challenges of language through my own history, I wanted my book to be to, to take a different path, to have a different starting point. Well, it had a different starting point, but to to, to have a, a different approach to a lot of the uh, the approaches that more confident and proficient commentators on, on, on language have. Because if most of the people in, in the trade are polyglots or, or at least uh, multilingual, uh, highly fluent in, in not only more than one, but, but uh, more than two languages in, in, in many cases. And so it's easy for them to say, yes, just follow me. I've done it. Uh, I'm much more aware of... of, of how many various and different obstacles there are in the way. So I wanted to take take a path which found a, a route through the different kinds of challenges. And I fairly rapidly realised that there's only one place for me to start, which is in the contradiction that's in the fundamental nature of language, which is that languages are as much about obstructing communication, to put it strongly, as they are about enabling it. And they obstruct communication, above all, in order to create groups and to, and to maintain them. In other words, to create distinctions between us and them. And I think unless we, we recognise that dual character, then we can't really get to grips with the whole range of challenges that, that uh, face us if we want to make the most of our languages and if we want our communities and nations and societies to make the most of languages. I think the idea is perhaps from Daniel Nettle, the hypothesis that there is a greater diversity of languages around the equatorial zone where it's there's a longer growing season, therefore populations have a, a better chance of being self-supporting than in less hospitable northern climates where there may have to be mutual dependence between neighbouring peoples. I thought it was a fascinating hypothesis. You can observe it in the, the, the global super hotspot of, of languages, Papua New Guinea, where there are hundreds of languages uh, all, all crowded in on each other in, in, in many cases. 
the easy uh, the, the easy assumption might be, oh, right, Papua New Guinea, uh, famously uh, difficult terrain. Um, people from outside, people from the West didn't actually realise that the interior was populated until they became able to, to fly over it in aeroplanes. If you look at the, the distribution of, of languages in Papua New Guinea, actually the greater diversity is in the less rugged terrain, the, 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 the parts, the, the areas where it's actually easier to uh, come up against uh, your, your neighbours. The harsher ter- the terrain, the languages uh, are, are more widely spread. And the idea, one explanation is that uh, in the harsher environments, it's the, the, the environment that, uh, uh, that causes you, you the, the biggest challenges. And so you, it, it's uh, more advantageous to have a language that promotes, co- a common language that promotes cooperation between different uh, individuals and groups of people. Whereas in the, uh, the less uh, challenging physical environments, your biggest challenge is probably other people. So one question that the book pursues is, does bilingualism confer advantages? And there was quite a long period when it was thought that in terms of educational attainment, bilingualism was a, was a hindrance. But that view has, has switched in recent times. Well, it's been switching for quite a while, actually. And, and um, the turning point really uh, uh, nearly 50 years ago. In the earlier part of the 20th century, the, uh, the uh, consensus developed uh, among experts, educationists and psychologists that being exposed to more than one language was challenging for children. It tended to produce mental confusion. It could slow down their, their, their development and, uh, and so on. And this this belief that, that bilingualism was a disadvantage to children was challenged in the 1960s um, famous study by Peel and Lambert in, in Canada where they said, oh, no, actually, no, so far from producing confusion, it, it seems to be giving these uh, children that we've studied in, in Canada an environment that's sympathetic to bilingualism, or certainly more so than, than south of the, uh, the border, in the United States, it seemed to actually um, be, be rather good, for, especially for mental flexibility. And in more recent years, this idea has developed into an explicit hypothesis about how the brain handles languages and the effects of that, which is that if you have two languages in, in your he- installed in your head, both are continually active. So you need to be continually managing the two of them and selecting the right one and suppressing the wrong one. Essentially, that's a function of attention. These are part of what's known as executive control or executive function. So it's like there's a, the, the brain's uh, imaginary executive is going, OK, uh, French, uh-oh, got to switch to English here and so on all the time. And that's like physical exercise. Doing a lot of it sharpens up cognitive performance and that can be detected by certain kinds of simple cognitive tests. The really big, really significant uh, development in, in that line of research was looking at people in later life and finding that bilingualism appeared to delay the onset of, of dementia by several years. And since Alzheimer's in, in, in particular tends to develop late in life, effectively 
that was uh, preventing dementia in many cases because people would uh, die of, of, of a different cause before uh, developing the condition. So this was huge. Uh, this, uh, the implications were huge. Suddenly it wasn't about education so much as, as a major and growing global public health problem. So the, the potential value of bilingualism was set to rocket, the, st the, the stock was set to rise. The problem has been, however, that as these, these exciting findings came in, other groups of researchers started to go, hmm, and find no effect. And this has developed into, well, from the outside, it looks it's a really unfortunate, uh, frustrating, fraught and um, an unhappy state of affairs in which the field has divided into two camps. And, you know, these days, I mean, I, I, when I see a listing for a new scientific paper, I know what the findings are going to be from reading the author list. Some researchers invariably find an advantage, uh, others invariably find no advantage. In the end, there may be a way of finding a, a coming together, a synthesis, which maybe doesn't tell us so much about uh, uh, advantages, but perhaps tell us, tells us a lot of interesting stuff about, about the brain. But we're not there right now. There is, I think, a, 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 lot of, a lot of supplementary research suggesting all sorts of interesting things like bilingual kids understand how to converse better than monolingual ones. So they, in other words, they, they, they have a better idea of, of uh, appropriate answers and uh, what to include uh, in an answer and uh, how long to go on for and so on. There's also suggestions, for example, that they're better, better at taking perspectives. In other words, um, there's a, a kind of classic strand of psychology experiments in which a child is shown something which is visible to the child but not to the researcher, and the test involves the child realising that the researcher or the researcher's assistant can't see the same as the child can. So that, that form of perspective taking, which is fundamental to development for one sense of selfness and otherness does seem to be rather rather favored by bilingualism intuitively you know it's it's easy to feel yeah that there's got to be a lot of potential advantages here but unfortunately on this big question of of executive control and and, and dementia we do seem to be in looking, looking at uh, at an impasse well I, I thought it was interesting that you pointed out that cultures which tend to be favorably disposed towards bilingualism, such as Canada, show a preponderance of positive findings, whereas um, the United States, which tends to be less favorable towards the, the notion of bilingualism, tend to find negatives. And I, I guess, apart from sort of smiling at the uh, perhaps sort of biases that might creep into research, it does highlight the fact that different cultures have different attitudes to the plurality of languages and, and that those sort of sociological and political factors will shape the extent to which bilingual or polyglot people will, will thrive or, or try to tamp down on their, on their languages. Yes, uh, that, that uh, observation is made by uh, Thomas Back, a, a cognitive neuroscientist who is based at the University of Edinburgh, uh, originally from Poland, and and uh, is is uh, an indefatigable advocate of of the use uh, the multiple use of languages. It does it certainly seem pretty intuitive that if you're in a country such as uh, Canada, where, well, say if you're in in uh, the uh, bilingual 
parts of Canada. I'm not speaking about the uh, the First Nations languages here, but the the French English ones. Then, well, the institutional environment has surely got to be favourable if you're if you're a researcher applying for a grant because it's a pertinent uh, uh, social social issue. Whereas if you're in a country or or a region that's less sympathetic to to bilingualism and is more interested in getting children to, and, and migrants to to uh, assimilate to the dominant language as quickly as possible, then research looking for advantages in bilingualism may uh, may find less favour with the funding authorities. More broadly, this is the path that I, I felt I had to take in, in, in the book. So you start off with the fundamental nature of language and then you think you have to think about what's going on in an individual brain and in an individual personality and, and uh, how the... the the fruits uh, may, may be maybe one, and the, the the challenges overcome. But eventually, you have to start looking at at how societies and how states favour or disfavour the plural use of languages. Uh, it's all very well saying that um, look, um, looking at executive control in a single single brain, but if if the person who's ma- who's who's managed to achieve that. Uh, is then prevented from using uh, one of those languages by the the laws of the land in which in which they're living. Well, that's that's uh, that's no, that's no good, is it? Now, at various points in the book, you report incidents that happen on public transport, and and I guess it brings people together sometimes in enforced proximity, and there have been a number of clashes that um, you know they get picked up on and, and filmed and and so on and language seems to be the the flashpoint there may be more be- below the surface but language seems to be the trigger for these outbursts of sort of nativist aggression against someone speaking a, a foreign language there are so many of these um, regrettably uh, not just from britain but but uh, from from around the world since unfortunately i had examples to choose from i looked at the ones where the focus of the objection was the use of a foreign language rather than just being foreign. So there's, there's cases in which somebody hears somebody speaking a foreign language and attacks them clearly because they're a foreigner. But there are also cases in which there's a sort of um, structured um, staged aggression, staged hostility in which, and, um, where the objection is made to speaking the foreign language. I think if you look at those uh, more specific, limited challenges, you can see a number of things going on. I mean, okay, you know, um, you can say, well, this person really just doesn't want the foreign person in in, in the country. But what they may be saying is, okay, well, you're in this country. So while you're in this country, don't thrust your foreigners in in our faces. We speak English in this country is, is, I think, a very, very telling pregnant phrase, uh, present pregnant uh, observation, it's laying down a norm. It's saying the way that we behave, we behave in a number of ways in this country to which you must uh, conform if you're, if you're, if you want to be here. And one of those is speaking the English language. But another important element of, of it is the suspicion that attends the use of, of languages that you don't understand. One incident that, uh, that is uh, caught on video and it's quite revealing uh, because it actually came from a time before the Brexit referendum. So the angry woman's um, outburst wasn't, why don't you all go back where you came from or whatever. It was about speaking English. 
And the first thing that she started saying, or, or that was recorded, was was uh, saying, "Don't speak about me in your in your lingo." So she was immediately assuming that that the people that she objected to were talking about her, which actually, according to one report, they might well have been, because uh, apparently she she was said that she'd. Uh, decided to treat the um, fellow passengers on this uh, underground train to her views very loudly about uh, the, uh, uh, in her view, negative impact of immigration on the country. But anyway, right. uh, the thing is, people do use languages that aren't understood in order to conceal their thoughts, their communications and their intentions from other people. The problem is assuming that uh, that they that this is what they are doing when they're speaking a foreign language. In other words, having a prejudice that they are talking about you and that what they're saying is not in your interests. The problem with it, I think, is, is, is it's all too understandable a reaction. And yet, and yet, it conflicts with other ideas that we have about the relationship between public and private. The woman I just mentioned said something rather interesting. She said something about, don't, don't speak, uh, speak that lingo on my train. So she's saying this is mine. Implicitly, I'm British, this is British, British public space, therefore this is mine and it's not yours. And that feeling of, of ownership and, and, and the, the, uh, the, the confusion between the private and, and, and the public, the personal and the public... I think is something that happens on trains because they're so crowded and they're public spaces and which don't actually uh, afford you your 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 personal space, uh, your body buffer exclusion zone. So this this tension produces these these outbursts. Now that I think points us to something really really important about about living together, which is that actually we have to maintain a fiction of respecting people's privacy and just turning around and going when somebody says we speak English in this country I mean I just always think you know yeah we mind our own business in this country as well. We live in a country where the teaching of foreign languages is declining so it's probably idealistic on my part to think that if more languages were taught perhaps we would have a higher tolerance for foreign languages of of all sorts we'd be more used to them we'd be more comfortable with the, the notion of them and we wouldn't be behind our monolingual rampart so much. Some research recently confirmed that, or, or indicated that pupils in, in the United Kingdom, students in the United Kingdom, dislike learning languages more than, um, than, uh, their, than their peers in, in, in a range of other European countries. One of the big difficulties is, I suppose, what, 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 what a person, a young person might feel they, they could gain from, from uh, uh, another language. As long as, uh, as, as you don't feel, oh, wow, there's something I really want that this language would, would give me access to, whether it's travel or, or um, romance or, or, or access to, to culture that you like. For a, a, a speaker of a language other than English, a young person, they're already coming to it with perhaps really really warm, rich emotional associations with the language because half the music that they, they like, the lyrics are in English, if, if not more, or, you know, the movies and so on. You know, they, they're drawn to it. 
a lot of them. I, I just don't know what the draw is, 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 is in, in, in this country. It's a really tricky one. And that's one reason, actually, I think, why, why um brings me back to heritage speaking and, and the, the huge varied resources uh, uh, that exist in this country of, of, of children and young people who have got access to, have got a, a heritage and knowledge of, of a whole range of other languages. The trouble is that teaching them, formalising them is really tricky because um, precisely because there's so many different ones. You know, you can't just standardise on Spanish, uh, French and German in that order and then Mandarin for for the for the uh, the, uh, the globally ambitious. It would help, I think, if national uh, educational curricula laid more emphasis and perhaps a, even, dare I say it, an element, a greater element of compulsion on, on language learning on the basis that uh, kids will thank us for it in later life. Uh, of course, that may not be true. And I guess one could take the pragmatic view that computer-assisted translation is developing by such leaps that maybe there will be no need to learn any foreign languages because the technology will do it all for us. And I, I guess this really comes to the heart of your your argument, you know, why using more than one language matters. And you would, I guess you would say that technology may take us so far, it may, it may facilitate everyday interchange, but there's still going to be something significant missing if we are to put all our faith in the software. Yeah, I argue that um, uh, artificial translation, voice translation, simultaneous voice translation, will in the end bring about an enhanced appreciation of of the value and the rewards of actually knowing a language or actually knowing a bit of a language. It does look as though there's no overwhelming technological obstacle to building a Babelfish, in other words, the, that famous um, invention of uh, Douglas Adams's, or it wasn't an invention, you know, a comic invention, the humorous author Douglas Adams, 40-odd years ago, came up with the idea of uh, a, a little organism that you can slip into your ear and you, you would understand any language um, in the universe. And the thing about that was was that it was it's it's a concept that kind of needed to be invented in the same way that uh, before there were mo- mobile phones, everybody thought, oh right, in the future we'll have personal radios that that we wear on our wrists, or one day in the future uh, we'll have TVs that aren't great big ugly boxes, but will be so slim they'll hang on the wall. Um, and uh, just as those two things came to pass in slightly different forms, I think maybe we will have that voice in your ear that'll that'll tell you in your language what anybody else is saying in, in in any language in the foreseeable future but i think what it'll do is it will be a great boon to a certain extent it may actually help uh, sustain preserve um, less powerful languages from encroachment from the big dominance english and maybe one or two others but Perhaps the two most significant things that it'll do is that, as you say, it'll um, transform everyday practical uh, interactions, you know, the hotel reception desk, buying tickets and so on. It'll do for that what the pocket calculator did for um, sums in the, in the 1970s. But in the same way, it will highlight the, the value of actually having those languages. So I think what's going to happen is that translation uh, languages will become commodity products. In other words, there'll be sort of this, this um, 
massive, everyday, uh, unglamorous, practical translation handled by machines, uh, people will realise that you get so much more if you actually have some interior insight into the language and ability to use the language. What the artificial translator is, is, is unable to do is convey potentially really vital uh, information about how the speaker construes their relationship to you. Are they treating you as an equal? Should they be treating you as an equal? Should they be using a more, more uh, formal and therefore respectful ter- term? Are they actually being rude to you? Are they being really friendly? You have no sense of that unless you're hearing that for yourself and you understand the difference between the different modes of address. But also, you, if you can think in, in, in a language, you have much more of a sense of, you, of what it's like to be inside that language and therefore you have more of a sense of what it's like to be the person that you're interacting with. Now, if it's a hotel receptionist, that's not important. But if it's uh, somebody you're doing business with or collaborating on a, on a transnational um, enterprise or, or research project or, or, or anything like that, then it really does matter. And so people with language skills um, will command an economic premium. But also I think, I, I would like to think, the intangible non-monetary value of, of languages will, will be appreciated better by when when the drudgery is done by by a, a little gadget in your ear. Well, that brings me very nicely to my last question, Marek. I mean, you say that the social and the emotional dimensions of language may be the most important of all. And if, you, if I were to ask you what social and emotional dimensions Polish has given to you, what, what you feel you've you've recovered or gained by going back to your Polish later in life? What would you, what, how would you frame that? Mm, that's a very good question and, and one which strangely it's, it's, it's oddly difficult for me to frame. You know, I, 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 um, I, I use, use this uh, expression uh, early on in the book when I'm trying to talk about um, my experience of, of having a slightly ghostly first language it's like it's it's always there at the edge of, of, of your vision. And if you turned around quickly enough, you see it, but you never quite do. And um, so I always think it's having an effect, but I, 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 it's so elusive. Um, I don't really know what it is. Years and years ago, some, somebody contacted me who was doing a, a translation course um, in Italy and um, said, uh, I'd like, I need to do a, a translation of a book as an exercise. I'd like to do do one of your books, and uh, um, which is also something to do with diversity. Um, and uh, she said something about, well, I think you're um, like not, not a, a native speaker. I emailed back and I said, well, you know, actually my, my um, command of English language is quite well developed, thank you very much. And she, goes, uh, she goes, no, 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 it's just the way that you use language. It has the signs of, of somebody who, who didn't speak it as the first language. Now, uh, I don't know. I mean, look, you know, she knew my name which is kind of a bit of a clue, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things I sort of hoped I'd find when I was um, doing the research for this was something to explore this idea a bit, because, and sadly, I didn't find anything. But um, the thing about it is that when I, when I read that, I just thought, I really think that's true. But I just don't know why. I would love to have a, a, a great answer for you. But, um, you know, I think maybe just my quest has to continue there. I was talking to Marek Kahn 
about four words for friend, why using more than one language matters now more than ever. It's published by Yale University Press and available now in hardback. You can find out more about it on the Yale University Press website and also on Marek's own site, marekcon.info. He's also on Twitter, at marekcon. Read his writing and see if you see the same ghostly hints of Polish behind or below his English that that Italian translator detected. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.